So if you want to get your Bibles ready, you can get it open to Genesis. Uh, we're going to be reading various passages, so uh, and they will be on screen if you're having trouble keeping up. Um, so just uh, be ready. I want to take you to the fathers uh, of the first three covenants in the Bible. And uh, to do some observation of certain aspects, we're not going to cover all or we would be here for a long time. But I want you to see the issue of worship witnessed. Scripture is filled with people we can learn much from. When it comes to the challenging vocation of fatherhood, several fathers in the Bible show what is wise to do and what is not wise to do. Of course, the most important father figure in the Bible is God the Father, the ultimate role model for all human dads. His love, kindness, patience and protectiveness are impossible standards to live up to. Fortunately, he is also forgiving and understanding, answering father's prayers and giving them expert guidance so that they can be the man their family needs them to be. I saw this, and it's in your footnotes, but I just we, we saw this on a Facebook post during the week, and we really liked it. Are you related to anyone famous? I don't want to brag, but I heard Dad calling God his father. <laughs> the premise that I want to reflect on this morning is that what we do, how we do it, and with what attitude and commitment we do it, we are constantly demonstrating for our children what worship means to us. Did you get that? What we do, how we do it, and with what attitude and commitment we do it, we are constantly demonstrating for our children what worship means to us. As Andrew Stroud notes, worship is such a common religious word, it's easy to assume we understand what it means and we're doing it the way God wants. You know, we think about worship and we come for a service of worship. We think worship's about Sunday service and singing. And No, I think that definition woefully misses the mark. Hopefully we do worship while we're here, but what we are before we come here and what we are during the week when we're not here has as much to do with worship. I love the way that Andrew Stroud uh, summarizes it in a simple definition. He says, We worship God when we live with Him at the center of our attention, our affections, and our actions. That, that's who their whole being. He is the focus of who we are if we're truly worshipping him. In Romans 
12, 1 and 2, the Apostle Paul says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. It fits with that definition that Andrew Stroud gave us. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. John Piper also put uh, this thought for us. From the opening chapters of the Bible, God makes it clear that humanity was created to enjoy life with God. And he ought to be the focus, therefore, of our affections and our attention. And we're going to start this morning by looking at Adam and his sons. Adam was the first man to ever exist. He was created by God as the first human being and placed in the Garden of Eden designed just for him. Adam is the father of all mankind. Every human being who has ever existed is a direct descendant of Adam and it is through Adam that every human being has inherited a sinful nature. As Ben Glad notes, Adam and Eve were created in the Garden of Eden to rule as kings, priests and prophets, bringing glory to God their maker. As the first man and first human father, Adam had no example to follow except for God's. Adam and Eve walked with God in the garden, which God himself has provided for this very purpose. And they are charged to turn the whole of creation into a place where God can be known and enjoyed. Relating to God for them at that point, was natural and unhindered. God decreed several things for Adam to honour and obey. Adam's spiritual life through fellowship with God depended on Adam's respect for God's laws. Really, it was only one at that point. There were punishments for transgressions and disobedience and, of course, rewards for a faithful obedience. Now, some folk, some theologians don't think that God made a covenant with Adam, but when you look at the list of instructions he's given, uh, and it is generally referred to as the Adamic covenant, an agreement that how their relationship would operate. It's strong evidence that God made a covenant with Adam. But of course, after the events of Genesis 3, where they ate the fruit that they were told not to eat from the tree of life, everything gets so much harder. Regrettably, he strayed from God's example and ended up plunging the world into sin. And we are told that man was driven out of the garden and barred from returning. So we read in Genesis 3.24, So he drove the man out, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. As John Piper notes, God's grand plan for his people in this world remains the same. But suddenly the way to God is littered with obstacles as the ease of relating to God is replaced with struggle. 
In fact, it's not altogether clear, he says, how our first parents are supposed to relate to God as they leave the now inaccessible garden behind. The task they were commissioned to do in Genesis 1.28 remains, but it will now be tackled against the grain of a broken creation and without the immediate presence of the Creator. You see, Adam, who walked with God by sight, now can only relate to God by faith. Can you imagine the grief that Adam and Eve must have felt having been banished from the direct presence with God? They had to trust that God would provide a way to restore the relationship with himself, despite the damage that would unfold from their sin and disobedience. They had to trust the promise of Genesis 3.15 that God would provide man a redeemer who would overcome Satan. And we read there, he says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. The battle between Satan and Jesus is, is, is taking its prime place. There would be a son given at some point in the future. And when he had to banish Adam and Eve from the garden, God did not send them out naked. He sent them, he made them clothes of animal skin, a precursor of the substitution that would later take place through the sacrificial system and ultimately would be fulfilled at the sacrifice of the Lamb of God, Jesus or Yeshua. As Pete McClanathan notes, we are given little information about the form of worship following Genesis 3, 6 and 7, the fall. We do know that it took place despite there being no tabernacle, temple or synagogue and without the written word or the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. After Adam and Eve were expelled from the Garden of Eden due to their disobedience, they began life outside the paradise. This phase of worship outside the Garden of Eden marked the beginning of humanity's journey in a world where they had to work and strive for sustenance. The next week we read of them is the birth of two sons, Cain and Abel. Now the man had relations with his wife and she conceived and gave birth to Cain and she said, I have gotten a man-child with, uh, uh, with the help of the Lord. And again, she gave birth to his brother Abel, and Abel was a keeper of flocks, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. But there is something we mustn't miss in the next two verses. So it came about in the course of time that Cain bought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Abel, on his part, also bought of the firstlings of his flock and of their flat, fat portions. And the Lord had, had regard for Abel and for his offering. Think about it for a moment. Cain and Abel are coming somewhere, bringing something, an offering to the Lord. Where did they get that idea from? Where are they bringing it to? Well, the Bible doesn't tell us directly, and although what I'm going to suggest is supposition, if we look at the patterns of worship that flow down through the rest of the Bible, we can get a clue. Where was the last point of contact with God? 
Well, it was the garden. And what has been placed at the entrance there on the east side of the garden? Cherubim, the highest order of angels, to prevent man getting access, direct access back to God and certainly to the tree, the fruit of the tree of life. Because if they had gone back and were, did have access to God, they would have been forever in their sin, never, never, never uh, forgiven, never dealt with. The, the, the provision of God's way back to himself of overcoming sin wouldn't have been there. Dr. John Barnett says this, the cherubim are always associated with being a surrounding group of four angels that always face God's holy presence. They never turn their heads. They, if you go back and we, we don't, I'm not, I don't have time today to look at it in more depth. He did go into a lot more depth. But uh, they had four faces, the face of a man, the face of an ox, the face of a lion, and the face of an eagle. Um, man being the highest order of creation, the ox being the highest of the domesticated animals, the lion being the, 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 uh, uh, the highest of the wild order of lambs, and the eagle being the highest of the, the, of the birds, and particularly the predatory birds. And they're, they're guarding the Garden of Eden. God tells us that he placed those guardians of his holy presence on the east side of Eden. And their main purpose and activity might be summarised in this way. They are proclaimers and protectors of God's glorious presence, his sovereignty and his holiness. And we find them later. Where do you find them? You find them on, on the entrance, on the east side again, in the tabernacle, and then in the temple, guarding the presence to the Holy of Holies. There's an altar laid which is surrounded by the four cherubim. And uh, he gives a plan for Moses to build a tabernacle. He told him to situate the tabernacle so that the only doorway to the tabernacle faced to the east. And when you would come through that doorway coming in from the east, the first thing you would bump into is an altar surrounded by these four cher the, the likeness of the four cherubim. And so it was in the temple, and it was the same in the temple that followed Solomon's temple and Zerubbabel's. So notice here what we have is the cherubim guarding the way at the east side of Eden. And the same in the, both the temple and in the uh, uh, tabernacle. It's a place where worship was expressed through sacrifice. Uh, when God's people sought to worship before these structures are built, where else did they do it? Well, we know that they built an altar, usually a stone altar, to offer sacrifice to God. Where is Adam likely to have placed an altar? At the place where the cherubim blocked the entrance to the holy place. It's possible that as they grew up, Cain and Abel had been taken to regularly witness this act of worship. They have heard the story of Adam's disobedience and its consequences. And they must have observed Adam's grief and desire for forgiveness and restoration. Now they come to, pl to a place of worship to bring their offerings. Mum and Dad are not mentioned here, although they're still alive. But there is a problem. 
Abel's offering is acceptable, but Cain's isn't. We read in verse four, uh, 5 and 6 here, But for Cain and for his offering he had no regard, so Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you, but you must master it. And then we find Cain told his Abel, his brother, and it came about they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. When Adam and Eve's sin caused them shame in nakedness, animals were killed to provide garments for Adam and Eve. Their worship involved repentance, seeking forgiveness and adhering to God's guidance. It seems that they have passed on their knowledge of worship and devotion to their sons. Abel killed the firstborn of his flock as a sin offering, but Cain thought he could come to God on his own terms. Abel didn't just, take, uh, didn't just kind of happen on this idea of sacrifice. There's been instruction. There's been messages passed down. And uh, Hebrews 11.4 tells us, By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous. God testifying about his gifts and through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. We need to understand the enormity of God's love to experience the reality of the revelation of God's way of salvation and to shudder at the gravity of Cain's sin. We need to see the hardness of Cain's heart in the face of the evident holy presence of God. Abel's offering was acceptable when Cain's wasn't. Why? Because God had revealed he wanted a blood sacrifice of a lamb with his blood poured out as the way to worship. Cain thought his own way was good enough. Perhaps he, he like many today, you know, recoiled at the thought of blood sacrifice, but that's the cost of sin. Deep down, he resented Abel for his righteousness and God's rejection of his offering. So in anger, he kills his brother, the first murder sign of how deep sin would go. Stop here for a moment. Fathers, are you demonstrating faithfully how to truly worship God? God is looking for fathers who freely choose to obey him and submit to his love. Fathers with integrity live in the knowledge that nothing is hidden from God's sight. And instead of blaming others, godly fathers take responsibility for their own failures and shortcomings. We read in, during the, in the communion time, Jesus said, but an hour is coming and now is when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshippers. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And young people, are you observing your parents 
and God's word to choose the right way to come to God in worship. Cain thought he could come his own way and the ensuing disaster was soon to infect the whole world with wickedness and became known as the way of Cain. In Jude 1.11 we read, Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain, and for pay they have rushed headlong into the error of Balaam and published in the rebellion of Korah. Wickedness started and spread, and Cain became the, 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 the renowned source of all wickedness in the sense that I'll do it my way. You know that old song, I did it my way? That's the testimony of many people's lives. But God is calling us in worship to do it his way. And it, it isn't just the action, acts of worship, it is the heart of worship. Remember we sing a, a chorus song I've come back called The Heart of Worship. Getting the focus in the right place. Well, there's so much more we could look at in Adam and Eve and, uh, and, and their sons. But I'm just, as I said at the start, giving you a cameo of three pictures this morning to reflect on. The second is Noah and his sons. With Adam, God began humility. With Noah, God began humanity anew. The wickedness has taken so hold that there, there is nothing but wickedness across the earth and there's only one family, one family, one godly family in all of the world. What a testimony. We first hear about Noah in Genesis 5, which begins with, this is the book of the generations of Adam. This is a recurring phrase in Genesis, and chapter 5 details the godly line of Seth as opposed to the worldly line of Cain. Adam, the first man, brought to life by the direct breath of God, the man who talked with God directly, was still alive when Noah's father, Lamech, was born. Noah stands out among the fathers in the Bible, and you can see the, the generations coming down to Noah there. Noah stands out among the fathers in the Bible as a man who clung to God despite the wickedness all around him. What could be more relevant today? Noah was far from perfect, but he was humble and protective of his family, and he, bra and he bravely carried out the task God assigned to him. The story of Noah is one of the most familiar in the Bible. The earth and all in it had become corrupt. Wickedness had taken over, and the earth, as it says, was filled with violence, and the people whom God created were hardened toward him grieving him to the point that it says that he regretted that he made man on earth. So God determined to make an end of all flesh and destroy them with the earth. At God's command, Noah set to build a ship of massive capacity according to God's specifications. He gathered the materials, built the boat, loaded the animals, and by the way, the animals just came to him, <laughs> They were led by God. And he stocked the ship with food and supplies. And onlookers thought he had lost his mind. <laughs> There's a powerful lesson in the story of Noah about the measure of a man or woman of God we would do well to pay attention to. God chose Noah out of all of the people of the earth because he knew the condition of Noah's heart. 
tucked away among the verses about wickedness and coming destruction, Scripture says, but Noah found favour in the eyes of the Lord. These are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. Later in Genesis 7, 1, it says, Then the Lord said to Noah, Enter the ark, you and all your household, for you alone I have seen to be righteous before me in this time. In short, Noah was faithful. His life was characterised by obedience, service and worship. By faith, he trusted in God's warning of what was ahead. He protected his family. He prepared the ark. Imagine building a massive boat for 140 years when they'd never seen a flood like this before, while being mocked and cursed. Because of his obedience, God saved him and seven others, his wife and three sons and their wives. And from that small crew, God repopulated the earth. But I want you to think about it this moment. The impact of Noah's righteousness was that it affected his wife, his three sons, and their wives. And remember, their wives came from families that were about to be destroyed in the flood. They had to choose. We're going to follow the way of... They didn't turn back like Lot's wife. (laughs) They get on board of the boat. They take God's instructions. They do what Noah's indicating. They're following the example, the witness of worship. And they're getting on that boat and God is saving them. Many years ago when I was at Bible college, I I was leading a home group and uh, my uncle, one of my uncles came along. Uh, Now Uncle Vic was a Nazarene, a Nazarene's an offshoot of the Methodist Church, holiness movement. And they particularly emphasized that uh, because of uh, a later verse in, in Scripture uh, that talks about entire, you can be entirely sanctified, and we will be one day. But he talks, they, they teach that, well, you can be sinlessly perfect now on earth. And uh, uh, <laughs> I remember Professor Howard Hendricks from Dallas Theological Seminary being uh, encountering a, telling how he encountered a chap who also, for some reason, I guess it's the number seven, we like to say that we've been perfect for seven years, it's the perfect picture, and uh, his, his response to the man was, give me five minutes with your wife, and give me two minutes with your kids, and I'll tell you whether you're perfect or not. <laughs> Centuries later, the Hebrews would highlight, the writer of Hebrews would highlight Noah's character. By faith, Noah, being warned of God about things not yet seen, in reverence, there's worship, folks, in reverence, prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. Noah kept his eyes on God despite the evil and depravity around him. He wasn't perfect by any means, but he protected his family and he remained faithful to his creator and carried out the task that God had asked him to do. Noah worshipped God because he feared God in in that sense of reverential fear, respect, 
Genesis indicates that the first thing Noah did when he walked out of the ark was to build an altar to the Lord. We read in Genesis 18, 8, 18 and 19, or to 20. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with them. Every beast, every creeping thing and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by the families of the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. I, I read somewhere one of the commentary, one, one sort of co uh, commentary or, or comment on, on it said, oh, well, God didn't give instructions, he just chose to do that. Well, wait a minute, no, he was told to take seven of the clean animals. <laughs> um, remember why? Because they were the stock for the worship. God, God had given him some details. We're not given the, the full detail. but And he takes of those and brings a burnt offering to God on the altar. We're following the same pattern, and it follows right throughout Scripture. His family were influenced in, in, by him and came under his covering, covering even his daughters-in-laws whose family were to perish. They came under the banner of faith. God blesses and protects those who listen to and faithfully follow and obey him. And obedience is not a sprint but a marathon. It means a lifetime of faithful devotion. Even the most faithful fathers have weaknesses and can fall into sin. But Noah's consistency, although as we said he's not perfect and you see a fallout between Noah and Ham in subsequent verses because Ham disrespected his father in, in a particular action. But Kersley Fitzgerald writes, Noah was the one man declared righteous by God in a world of evil. He watched God work during the flood, displaying both his holiness and his protection for God's family. And if you go down to chapter 11, he had seen the Tower of Babel built and deserted and people spread across the earth. And he makes an interesting note. It's impressive how quickly people can forget God. <laughs> how quickly people choose to go away from trusting the things of God, from truly worshipping God. Uh, and, and so we're reminded in the story of Noah and his sons. And then we come to the third covenant. We had the Adamic covenant and then the Noahic covenant. Now we come to the Abrahamic covenant with Abraham and his only son. When God chose the man who would father his nation, it was 19 generations removed from Adam and nine removed from the flood. If there are no gaps in biblical genealogy, which we assume there not to be, Noah was alive when Adam was born. In fact, every one of Abraham's Abraham's forefathers from Noah on was alive when Abram was born. Of course, you have Methuselah being the oldest, and he, he died the year that the flood, uh, the, uh, the flood came. Austin Nakachi notes, Abraham was one of the greatest worshippers of God of all times. He demonstrated unique qualities we all need to emulate in worship. And he notes this, and I want you to think about this. You may be a churchgoer, but not a true worshipper. 
You may be in the choir, but not a true worshipper. You may be a pastor and not be a true worshipper. You may be a singer, but not a true worshipper. Abraham worshipped in obedience. When God asked him to go to Moriah and sacrifice his only son, and remember he, uh, the birth of Isaac came very late in age, around 100 years of age, beyond when they thought it was even physically possible. He obeyed and went. And by the way, it says Abraham and his only son. Doesn't mention Isaac, why? Uh, yeah, no, Ishmael, why? Because Ishmael was the son of fleshly attempts to fulfill the promises of God. Isaac is the child of faith. And uh, he obeys and goes. And by his obedience, he placed God the first before himself. You see, worship is not about us. We need to get hold of that. You know, so often we come and we like worship or we don't like it. We like the hymns, we don't like the hymns. We, do, You know, but true worship is not about us. Ultimately, it's about God. It is about satisfying God before anything else. Some of us worship God due to what we get or for what we can get. But God, Abraham worshipped God out of love and obedience. Abraham made mistakes when he relied on himself instead of God, and we see a few examples of that. Still, he embedded, embodied qualities that any father would be wise to develop. He made obedience to God a priority. Have a look at this, Genesis 22.1. Now it came about after all these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. <laughs> He's responding to the call of God. Now, on the way, uh, uh, God had finally given Abraham and Sarah the son he had promised them, only to command Abraham in the next verse, in 22, verse 2. He said, take now your son, your only son, whom you love. You see, there's a potential tension here that we might love the gifts more than the giver. And he's taken this impossible child, this miracle child, and he says, now be prepared to give him up. It's a very tough passage of Scripture. Some people struggle with it. But he says, Take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. Now on the way up, you notice something in verse 7, that Isaac has a question for his father. Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father... And he said, here I am, my son. And he said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? How does Isaac know about that? <laughs> He's learned it from his father, who learned it from the generations before, going right back to Adam, and from the walk with God, the instructions that, he, that had been given. And Scott Aniel notes that, confident that God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. Abraham followed God's command, obeying even to the point of binding Isaac upon the altar and raising his knife to kill him. God did indeed provide a ram as a substitutionary sacrifice in verse 13 and reaffirmed his promises in verses 15 to 18. 
And there is no coincident temple. This is the same mountain where Solomon will later build the temple. And the concept of a substitutionary sacrifice continued to be central in Israel's later total worship and theology. Idolatry, the worship of something other than God. So often we associate it with idols, little images. But it's more than that. It is the worship of something other than God is at the root of all sin. You see, Cain worshipped his own understanding. He thought he could give to God equally and please God on his terms. But idolatry, the worship of something other than God, is at the root of all sin because sin seeks to steal glory from God to whom alone it is due and take it for the sinner. The generations from Adam to Abraham didn't have the scriptures. But what they did have, as many cultures have had, and we think of Aboriginal culture and the passing down of the stories, is they had the opportunity for stories. They had the potential to ask those who witnessed God's great greatness. It's not the fault of God if the world didn't know how to worship him. It's the fault of parents who didn't teach and children who didn't listen. Which, of course, begs the question, uh, yeah. what are we teaching the children that we know? What about you? Are you showing your children, what are you showing your children about worship? For they will see whom you worship by the devotion and affections that you, <laughs> you live by and live for. And they will see how you worship in terms of your obedience to worship God, in terms of your obedience and, and, and faithfulness in seeking him. We see the examples through Adam, Noah and Abraham. And it comes down to us. Are we true worshippers? And can our children see that? And then it comes down to children. Are you listening? Are you observing? And although your parents are not perfect, and though their instruction may be contradicted at times, is it focused? Are you focused to worshipping God in terms of how you live and the choices that you make? We have a tremendous, and as it says, uh, fathers are not perfect. But children will often follow, not guaranteed, but they will often follow what they see as to be genuine within you. And so we have an opportunity to, to demonstrate for, their, for them to witness our heart of worship. And even if you've had a bad example, as a child, you have an opportunity to discern, is this the way of God? Is this pleasing to God? Will I follow him or will I seek my own way? Will I worship myself over worshipping God?
And as we saw with Cain, the choices multiply in their effect. If we choose the way of wickedness, then we inflict and affect others that will follow after us. We will set an example for them. And if we choose the way of righteousness, just like Noah, we can have an impact on those around us. It's not all a simple formula. Everyone has to choose which way they're going to go, even where they've had a good example, or even where they've had a bad example. It is possible to choose to truly worship God. This Father's Day, may we honour our Heavenly Father by truly seeking, not just on Sundays, but in everything that we do to revere and worship him. As, as, as the Lord's Prayer says, our heaven, Heavenly Father, hallowed be your name. I'm going to choose to revere, to respect and worship you by the way I live. Let's just come before him in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that the Bible reveals men in their fallenness. And so, of Ad, whether of Adam or even Noah or even Abraham, we, we don't only read the good things, we also read the points at which they stumbled and fell. With King David, the scripture describes as a man after God's own heart and he failed, but you pick his heart when he, he breaks and he cries, sacrifice and burnt offerings are not what you desire, but a broken and a contrite heart, a heart that will acknowledge God's right and God's righteousness and God's holiness and therefore our, at times our sinfulness and come back willing to proclaim the goodness of God our Father. And so we just pray that you would be with us this day, that we might not only honour our earthly fathers, who in all, in, in all their imperfection have sought to care for us, but to particularly honour our Heavenly Father, who unfailingly has shown us his